Hello everyone and welcome to the Motor City Hoops podcast, an entertaining fresh take on the three-time NBA champs, the Detroit Pistons. Hey Hoopheads, we appreciate you listening to this episode of Motor City Hoops. Be sure to check out these other NBA pods on the Hoopheads podcast network, including Cavaliers Central, Knuck If You Buck, 305 Culture, Spanning the Spurs, Daily Thunder, X's and O's NBA Breakdown, LA Hoops, The Wizards Hoops Analyst, At The Buzzer, and Lakers Fast Break, plus our coaching-focused podcasts, Thrive with Trevor Huffman, Beyond the Ball, the CoachMaze.com podcast, Players Court, Features and Boards, The Green Light, and Courtside Culture. Oh, and don't forget to check out our flagship, the Hoopheads podcast, hosted by me, Mike Cleansing, and my co-host, Jason Sunkel, featuring the best minds in the game, from grassroots to the NBA. Hey, Hoopheads, we all hate ankle sprains, and they happen way too often. Ankle injuries are the number one sports-related injury. Arise is trying to change that. With the iFast, your athletes get preventative protection and full mobility. Athletes no longer need to wear bulky braces that limit performance and give mediocre protection. Anyone playing sports should be using these products. Keep your athletes in the game. Don't wait for them to get hurt to take action. Visit www.arise.com slash team pricing to learn more. That's A-R-Y-S-E dot com. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Motor City Hoop Show. On today's episode, we are very lucky to be joined by CJ Marchesani from the Stepien and Roll Call Sports. We're going to get CJ's outside unbiased perspective on the state of our Pistons and his draft expertise on what we might see Troy Weaver do. We'll also get a chance to dive in some very, very cool metrics he developed, gravity and spacing, and maybe even talk a little NBA playoffs. First, I just want to welcome and thank CJ for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk Pistons, talk draft. Yeah, I appreciate it. We've been talking about this for a while. I, you know, I follow all your stuff on Twitter. If you guys see the breakdowns the Motor City Hoop Show does, you know, I reference CJ's gravity and spacing uh, metric. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to have him on the show. So the first thing I want to talk about CJ though is whenever we have like a, I guess, quote unquote, non Pistons guy on the show, I like to get their perspective because there's a lot of excitement with Pistons fans. So what is your outside perspective of the Detroit Pistons, the young core and where this organization is at and where it's heading? Sure. I think that, well, you have to love the, the track that they're on. They're starting a really nice core here with Killian Hayes. Isaiah Stewart, the Jeremy Grant contract was pretty um, questioned at the time, but it looks like they knocked that out of the park. I think this was as good of a first year from Troy Weaver as you could possibly expect. And I think they're, I think they're probably still a year away from really contending for even a playoff spot. It's kind of hard with a young point guard, especially one that missed the entire rookie year or most of the rookie year like Killian did. But I think from the situation they were in just a couple years ago with that bloated Blake contract, I think it it would have been hard-pressed to find themselves in a better spot now than they did with only one more year of that dead money from Blake. Yeah, I mean, we feel like, I feel like Troy Weaver just turned this roster over in 12 months, you know? Like, I'm pretty sure Sekou's like the only guy left 
from even from last year, the year before this year. Um, so he just turned it over, got his guys. You're right, that Jeremy Grant trade. And I know you want to talk a little bit about Jeremy Grant. Um, are you a Sixers fan? Is that where that is? Is that? I, I am. I am. Okay. My basketball fandom stems first from Allen Iverson, and then through, yes, then through the process Sixers. I uh, I live right around Philly, so that's my team. That's my uh, inside the basketball. Awesome, man. So I, I, Allen Iverson, I've said it before, is my favorite player of all time. I fell in love watching Allen Iverson. Our games are completely different. I can't do anything, any of the stuff Allen Iverson could, but I tried and I wanted to. So I fell in love with the game of basketball watching Allen Iverson. So that, that's awesome. Um, how were the, the process years? How, how rough was that as a fan? Sorry, I know we're getting off topic, but that's okay. Right off of the bat. No, it's fine. I think. Honestly, I think they get a bad rap from the people that didn't live them. I watched more Sixers minutes during those process years than I did any other time during my life because there was a different team every night. And it was so cool to feel like for the first time in years, for the first time since Iverson, it felt like the front office had a plan and it felt like we were moving in the right direction. So even though they were losing, I, I think it kind of brought that group of fans that kind of stuck it out. It brought them in closer. And um, now that they're, you're kind of seeing the culmination of it, it's been a really exciting journey. Okay, so this correlates to the Pistons because that's how I, f- that, I feel like that's how we feel in Detroit is even though we were all hoping for losses and wanting to see losses, we saw the vision. We saw the plan. We had a GM we trust. Like we, we trust and believe so much in Troy Weaver and so I guess that kind of correlates there too. You know, from the outside, it's like, oh, they just, they suck. They're not winning games. They're tanking, whatever. But whenever you're in on it, you see the vision and you see what the end product hopefully will be. Like you say, now with the Sixers and hopefully in a few years with the Pistons. Yeah, I agree. And I think that they really are right in that spot in their development. And I think that the thing that I learned from that process Sixers team, because as fun as they were, the thing that I really picked up was that when you're drafting guys and making moves and things like that, it's important to think about these guys like, are they going to be there on the contending team? Because we saw that rotating door of Sixers and guys like Robert Covington and Dario Saric were traded for the contending team, which I think counts. I think they are, they're guys that I consider as core pieces that would have been part of that. And the same with TJ McConnell and obviously Joel and at the end of the process, Ben. But really, those guys that we were rotating were rotating for just the tiniest edges or to flip them in trades or to see if you're just going to get that one guy through the revolving door like Covington was for us that's going to stick. And I think that the one thing that I kind of got caught up on was looking at drafts and saying, well, I don't know if I want to take this guy because so-and-so is here. And I think a lot of that isn't as crucial at this point in the rebuild, especially considering how many of these guys are going to make it through to the end of the rebuild. It's, I think it's usually less than you think. All right, that's perfect. And we're going to get right into that. That'll be the heart of the first draft question I ask you. But I want to talk about what you just said in terms of Jeremy Grant, because this is how this all started was the Jeremy Grant. And there's a lot of people that Yes, the contract's great. He exceeded expectations. He was better than what I thought he he was going to be, was able to do things. I still don't think he's a number one scorer, but 
a lot of people don't think that he is going to be with this team when we're contending. Like they don't think he fits the timeline. A lot of people want to flip him right now for prospects. What was your thought of Jeremy Grant? You mentioned in a tweet that you hated to see him leave Philly. And then just in terms of the future with the Pistons. Yeah. I, I mean, I think first on a personal level, it was awesome to see a guy that was really pigeonholed as that defensive cover everything guy and the three and D guy really bet on himself in a city that he fell in love with and have it pay off. I know his his efficiency fell off a little bit as the season was going on. And you're right, he's probably not that number one guy. But I, I think from a pure value standpoint and just that final Pistons team, the vision, I think it would make sense to ex- at least explore offers for Jeremy Grant. You're definitely not trading him for just anything. But if he's providing real value to that championship Pistons team, I think it's worth exploring. But the thing that, that Troy Weaver and the front office is building seems to be a real culture thing. And Jeremy Grant bought into that and believed in that. And I'm not sure that that is a great overall look for the franchise that is trying to eventually going to be a player in free agency and need the agents on their side to... Uh, get a guy in these these free agency meetings, sell him on your culture, have him buy all the way in, and then flip him after the first year. I, I think in the long term, unless he's bringing you back a star or star potential, I think that Jeremy Grant is a better piece to prove that the Pistons are on schedule and to prop up that locker room than he is in a trade. That's such a great point because I brought this up with Derrick Rose. A lot of people, especially after last night, um, but even before last night, felt like we got fleeced in that deal with Derrick Rose. And my thing was always, I feel like I have no actual knowledge of this, but I feel like Derrick Rose went to Troy Weaver, said, I want to go to New York. I want to play for Tibbs. And Troy Weaver and the organization granted him that. They felt like he deserved that. And I just feel like that brings good karma. Like that, that puts you on the good side of the basketball gods, whatever you want to say with, with, and then like you said, with agents and other free agents, whenever the Blake contract gets off, we will have a chance in free agency. So you're right. Jeremy Grant has said he wanted to go to a black city, play for a black coach and a black GM. And then if you trade him next year at the trade deadline, you lose all of that goodwill. And I think even after Jeremy Grant starts to, I don't know, go downhill or whatever, he's played this 3 and D role, like you said, that he was pitching hole. He can go back to that role. That'll be easier for him than a lot of people. So I do see him in our long-term future. Yeah, I agree. I think that, I think that you hit it right on the head there. I don't think that it's a good locker room move. And the only thing that would really swing me is if you're getting a true superstar package for him along the lines of what the Pelicans got for Drew Holiday or something like that. If it's franchise changing, I think everybody would understand. But the Piston, Jeremy Grant was the first free agent to choose back to go to the Pistons in this rebuild. And I think that you reward that and it will, you know, come back to you tenfold. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's, let's dive right into the, gra- the draft then, CJ. This is, this is what you do. I call you an expert. I go to you and a couple other guys on Twitter and I just, uh, I hold your guys' word as gospel up against anybody else. I don't get into the draft quite as much. So I take what you guys say. So my first question is, and well, before we get to this, cause this has changed. So one, two, three, I, I thought was set. I would say Cade Mobley, Jalen Green. There's a lot of Pistons fans right now that would absolutely take Jalen Green over Evan Mobley at two and are even talking about Jalen Green at one. So I want you to tell any of our listeners why that would be a mistake, if you believe that would be a mistake, or maybe you agree with them. Sure. Well, first of all, at one, uh, 
I, I don't think I, I don't think Cade is really up for discussion. He is just that generational guy that he's the reason you tank, right? You don't tank so you can come up with Jalen Green as good of a prospect as he is. You tank so you can get Cade Cunningham, the once in the generation guy. But in between Mobley and Green, I can see where Pistons fans would lean Green because he has the wild athleticism, the pull-up shooting. He is that flashy guy. He looks the part of star. But I have Evan Mobley just in a vacuum pretty solidly over Green. I think it's actually closer between Green and Suggs than it is Mobley and Green. Mobley is seven feet tall, but plays like a wing. He He's going to be listed as a center. He'll probably play center early, but he does not need to be stuck in that center role. He can absolutely play with Isaiah Stewart, and he is just a really, really talented big man prospect with smooth feel, uh, really, really nice movement skills, both laterally and vertically. He He's missing, uh, I, let's not say he's missing, a knock on him is that whether he does or does not have that killer instinct. But I I am definitely sold by what he was able to accomplish with a USC team that didn't necessarily suit his skills perfectly. Well, and I, I think that's what Pistons fans see, right? Jalen Green is the absolute, and I, I would agree with this, is the absolute best fit. I've been saying this for a couple months, but I don't agree. You said it earlier. You don't draft for fit whenever you're in our shoes. Maybe you don't ever draft for fit. That's a whole nother discussion. Jalen Green's the best fit because he plugs into the two spot and he's a pure score, go get his own bucket isolation. I think a lot of Pistons fans, one, you touched on it with the Isaiah Stewart being on the floor together, but I don't think a lot of people see him as the wing the way you're talking about him or haven't seen him as that way yet. But also, I don't think they see him as this score. Like, is, is he a number one score down the road, CJ? Evan Mobley? Um, Maybe not. Uh, I think that it's a stretch to say that he gets the number one score on a team. But I, th- I think that to discount the rest of his game just because of that would be doing him a disservice. I think that he is absolutely can be the anchor of a defense. And I, I think that people may be giving Jalen Green a little bit too much credit that he can become that number one scorer. I think it's definitely closer to in his realm of possibilities than Mobley. But his Jalen Green's biggest weakness right now, offensively, is his handle. He has he jump out of the gym ability, and on one or two dribbles, he could really get to a nice pull-up jumper. But his handle is high and loose right now, and sometimes his body gets ahead of that. And historically, handle is a very difficult thing to tighten. And if you're asking him to hit that Zach Levine ceiling, because we, if we're looking at it, Zach Levine is probably the closest thing in the NBA that we have to Jalen Green's ceiling, his top outcome. He really needs to tighten up that handle before that can be done and to more than just league average. You know, he needs to develop that to an, act, an actual strength in his game. So I think that number one scoring is, of course, important, but to discount the entire rest of the player's game o- over one player that is a better chance of being a number one scorer would be doing the Pistons a disservice. And I don't expect Troy Weaver to only be looking at that. Absolutely. I I think Troy Weaver, 
uh, just from the little bit of history we have, I think he lo- would love Evan Mobley, his size, his length, and all. I mean, I think he'll love Cade too. I think he takes Cade one, Mobley two, and then you know we'll talk a little bit about Suggs and and some of these other guys also. I think if we land in the top three, we should be really really happy. I think we're gonna disagree on Jalen Suggs just a little bit, um, but that that's interesting with Jalen Green because I do agree that there's things you can improve on as you play throughout your career. Handle seems to be one of those that you don't all of a sudden get in the NBA and get better at. So that that's really interesting that that's maybe an area of concern or weakness with Jalen Green. Um, but let's move into the rest. So obviously Pistons fans know we can end up one through six. We kind of talked about the top three. What happens in the four to six range, CJ? And even more so, you don't have to get into this right away, but I do want to talk about Jonathan Kaminga because it used to be a top five draft and I feel like that's changed. So give us those guys in the four to six range, what you would do, what you like um, in that area for the Pistons. Yeah, so you touched on it. I have it as a big four up at the top of this draft. I think that Suggs probably doesn't have that number one scoring potential that that people seem to be enamored with with Jalen Green, but he's the ultimate connector player. And he has better on ball chops than he's giving credit for. He really is a good player. He's good on the defensive end. And he played in an excellent context at Gonzaga, which you need to take into consideration, right? So there there wasn't a better situation for a point guard to be playing in college basketball than Jalen Suggs at Gonzaga. So he looked really good. He had a great college season, but he's also a great player. We have to remember that this isn't a out-of-nowhere kid that had a great season at Gonzaga when he was coming into his freshman year of college before he played a game. He was a pretty consensus top seven guy. So he he's not he's not like a charity story, you know. He's been a top prospect well before this breakout season at Gonzaga. And I think that he fits with what the Pistons are doing really well. He's hard-nosed. He plays off Killian really well. He'll be a great connecting guard. And he's tough, which I feel the city of Detroit has a uh, penchant for really liking. Absolutely. What Okay, what, what about Jonathan Kaminga? Because I, I just... It's been such a weird situation with him. And obviously you don't have him at least as like the top five. You may still have him as a number five prospect, but you know, not the top five anymore. So, so what's the story with him? What, where's his draft stock gone? Yeah, he's fallen past five for me. And honestly, if I were a betting man, I would put money on him to be the fifth overall pick. I think whoever ends up there is probably ending up with Kubinga as a consolation prize. He had a nice start to his Ignite career. The issue I'm having with him, and I think some other people are having with him, was he didn't show as much skill progression as you would hope to see. He's a big body. He's going to be an NBA body no matter what, and he has some nice defensive potential. But the shot didn't really progress in a meaningful way. And outside of a couple flashes during games, you didn't see that same playmaking flash that you really wanted to see. And what? I, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. Finish. No, I, no problem at all. I was just, my last point there is I'm always a little bit wary of guys who win on strength. You know, all through high school, Kuminga won on strength. And at, at Ignite, it's a little bit harder to win on strength because you're playing against men. But at the NBA, everybody's strong, you know? So you need those secondary skills that you can really go to to make the NBA body that much more dangerous. And I think. Not that he can't get there, but he didn't quite show as much progression as I think a lot of people were hoping. 
No, that's a great point because there's only there, there's very few Zions and Shacks and you know guys like you say that just win with strength, overwhelming like just just their body, you know, like that. Like a lot of those guys get through high school, they maybe even college at some levels, you know, and then they get to the NBA. And like you say, you're not going to get it done that way in the NBA because everybody's strong and athletic and, and everything else. So who is number five and six for you then before we move on to a little later lottery prospects? Who's number five, number six on your big board? Sure. Five and six are I think a spot that Pistons fans are probably going to want to avoid, honestly. <laughs> if it, yeah. it sounds like they're star hunting, and of course, they want to stay out of there anyway. But once I get past the stars, I tend to pivot to guys that I think can star in their role. And so my five and six are five is Franz Wagner, and six is Jaden Springer. I am wildly high on both of them. That's probably higher than either one of them, especially Springer will go in the draft. But... Franz is through the roof in advanced stats. Advanced metrics love him. He's that ultimate connector guy that has, you know, misses incredible arms. She just, he just, his arms go for days. Phenomenal off ball defender that can hang on ball with everybody but the quickest guards. And I really do buy his shooting. He has some nice secondary playmaking off closeouts. And he's the kind of guy that I can see being that star role player. That maybe isn't a top two player on your team, but is consistently the third best player on your team. Wow, interesting. Okay, and that that that'll be interesting because I've seen a lot of you know on, on Pistons Twitter, obviously Michigan. You see a lot of uh, I don't want to say Franz hate, but not a mm-hmm. lot of you know love for Franz. Yeah. So he, he doesn't play a sexy game. He's not a sure. give him the ball down the stretch and go get a bucket kind of guy. But he is. We have to keep in mind, honestly, with Springer too. Franz is the same age as most of the freshmen in this class. He was the youngest freshman in this class. So what he's doing right now as that poised player that you saw at Michigan this year, he's doing as a freshman-aged prospect. And that's a perfect segue into Springer because Jaden Springer led the Tennessee Volunteers this year in scoring as a high school senior-age prospect. He's actually the youngest prospect in the college class. He will still be 18 when he's drafted. And he still has some room to progress. And that Rick Barnes offense didn't really do him any favors. But he's another guy that he can get after it at the point of attack. For my money, he's the best point of attack defender in this draft. And he moves the ball well. He has flashed some serious pull-up potential. And you have some confidence that he can take it out to three. Or take it out to the three. So I think those two are two really, really, really good players that don't fit the typical, you know, prototype of that top five pick, but at the end of the day will be that impactful starter role player that you may not get if you're swinging for the fences there at five and six. Awesome, man. That, I mean, th- this is so fascinating to me. I- I've tweeted this out before. I, I want to see if you agree with me. Like, as as interesting as the top four is and as exciting as the top four is, for the most part, I feel like it's pretty set. Like there may be a little bit of room and all those guys are going to be big time players. I feel like the draft is fascinating starting at number five because it's, you know, one guy has James Booknight at five. One guy has Kai Jones. You have Franz. You know, one guy has Keon Johnson, which is Springer's teammate, you know, at six or seven. And, you know, and you're talking about Springer at six. So I just, I think it's crazy. I don't, maybe this is how it always is, but it just seems like there's so much variance from, say, 
what, five to 20, 25? Like, would you agree with that? Or am I just, is this a product of, of recency bias? No, I think you nailed it. And I, I go to 22. I, I, w- I was talking to somebody a, a couple of days ago and said, if you throw picks outside of, take your out of it. If you throw picks six to 22 in a blender and assign them random, randomly, it wouldn't look that weird. You know, there's no, the, the, and that is why I think it's not actually a great place to be that sixth, fifth, sixth pick, because when the value is that tight, you get your guy at five or six, sure, but you're almost better trying to get out of that pick when you have that many levels of guys right in that same tier. Okay, so that's what I was going to ask, but if it's that close, is anybody going to want to trade up? So so I guess that's my that leads me into the next question, CJ. What do we do at 5-6 or can we trade out of 5-6? You know, it, maybe somebody falls in love with one of these guys and then so what do we do? do, do are we better off just taking our guy there? I think it's going to depend on how uh, Weaver's final board ends up. If he is over the moon about a guy like Keon Johnson, outside of the top five, Keon's Keon might have the most hypothetical upside in the draft. I mean, he's a monster vertical athlete. He's a monster or lateral athlete, and he's on a really phenomenal development curve. He's getting to his pull up in the mid range right now. You can project that getting out to the three point line. But the issue, and I love Keon. I have Keon eight, but he is essentially star potential. But there is a whole nother universe where he doesn't hit that. And he's just like a rotation guy, you know, which is why in that vacuum, I have Franz and Springer and right now Moody ahead of him, because those are three guys I feel that you could really take their skills to the bank and run with. But I I think if, I think if I'm a big believer of if you have a guy, you get them. But if Weaver is sitting there at, say, worst case scenario, six, and all of his guys are gone, I I think that you can trade back to 12, 13, 14, get a comparable level player to what you would have gotten at six, and let whoever fell in love with somebody at six trade up for what would essentially be a relatively same tier level of guy. Sure, sure. That makes it, I mean, that's what I think we have to hope. You know, I think that's the best case scenario if we fall out of the top four. I'm not in love with Jalen Suggs, but like I'm fine with Suggs at four. But anything, if we land land five, six, I am kind of hoping we just trade back, acquire some more assets and and still find a guy that Weaver likes. But somebody has to fall in love with somebody. You know, you have to take two to dance, as they say. You know, you got to find somebody that's willing to trade up. One last question before we go to the end of the first round, CJ. Who's the biggest, and it may be Keon Johnson, so if it's Keon, go to the next guy if, if you don't mind. Who's the biggest upside? Who's the biggest boom, regardless of how bad the bust or downside is? Who's the biggest boom in the lottery outside of those top four? That's a good one. I think I'll give you two guys, and I'll, I'll tell you where I have them as we go. I think that the biggest boom guy that probably isn't really looked at like that and I don't think the Pistons will necessarily be interested in is Sharif Cooper oh yes okay I'm glad you brought him up I I thought he'd be getting more love so he is he is really really high feel he's the best floor manipulator in the class and that's in a class that has Cade Cunningham in it he's a brilliant passer 
and he gets fouled like it's going out of style. He's a absolute magician at the rim. The issue is he's six feet tall and his shooting mechanics are a little wonky, but he has the potential. If we're not talking about bust, we're going to get that out of here. He has the potential if he develops that pull-up three-point shot to a point where it needs to be respected. He has the potential to be a legitimate offensive engine in the NBA. And you don't get an a opportunity to pick a guy that has that potential very often. Awesome. And who was the second guy? Um, the second guy, I'll go with, um, you know, Bryce, this guy, Kai Jones. <laughs> I'm low yeah. on Kai Jones. I have him 22nd right now. No, I'm not a particular fan. I think a lot of what he brings to the table is more theoretical right now than actual. I'm, I'm kind of a proponent of, unless we're talking about freshmen or young guys developing that skill, I'd rather draft good basketball players than hopes and dreams on a prayer that they'll play out. But despite that, Kai is still 22nd for me, despite really you're drafting him on flashes. He was not a consistent um, product of what you're hoping he's going to be in the NBA, but the flashes are so tantalizing that you can see you can see a five man that defends the rim, play makes, and scores at a high level, which all with beautiful movement skills, which doesn't come around very often. But sure. I, so, I do think his skill set's very the- theoretical at the moment. CJ brought up Bryce. He's he's talking about Bryce Hendricks, who between him. Uh, CJ, obviously, and then at Mavs Draft, uh, Richard Stamen. Those are the three guys I referenced earlier. Those are the guys I go to for all my draft stuff. And you, you guys seem to have a, a at least a Twitter relationship. I don't know if you guys know each other from past or just through through that. But Bryce Hendricks is super high on Kai Jones. I think he even put him as number five on his latest, right? So um, his latest big board. Yeah, Bryce is an awesome guy. He writes for me at Roll Call. And okay, we've perfect. developed a uh, pretty close relationship over the last couple months. But he is monster high on Kai, and I don't mean to come at his guy, but um, I definitely see where the upside can be there. Sure. All right. So before we move into the spacing and gravity metric you brought uh, created, CJ, I want to just ask one more question about the back end of the first round. This is something we talk a lot about in Pistons world because we have those three second rounders. And somebody, I think it was Richard Stamen actually brought up that you're probably not going to trade all three of those second rounders because the team's not going to want three second rounders in the same year. But some sort of package of those and a future or one of those and a future. And some of those teams at the end of the first round want out of that. They don't want to have to pay that guaranteed money to a first round pick, those guaranteed contracts. Who's somebody at the end of the first round you like would be a great fit for the Pistons or just, you know, just even in general? Sure. I'll throw a couple guys around. Um, First of all, it is a guy that I think came in with more hype than he now has, which I'm a little bit confused about because he didn't really play much, is Josh Christopher from Arizona State. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Christopher kind of came in with the the label that he's a gunner, you know, a high volume scorer, shoots the ball a lot, maybe not the most efficient player. But I think that really undersells what he brings you on the defensive end. He is, he's got a monster wingspan. He's very athletic vertically and laterally. He, and he uses that wingspan to get up in guys on ball and create steals. And he can provide a little bit of rim protection on, um, on the weak side. I think he's actually a really good defender. And if he's a really good defender, that makes the theoretical 
offensive um, skill set a lot more interesting because he's no longer just your gunner. He's a guy that if you mold into a more efficient scorer, he's a legitimate two-way wing that teams can never have enough of. Awesome. Awesome. I've heard his name brought up a couple times as well. And, and I've actually heard the defense with him. Like there's a, there's a high upside defense or maybe not even upside. Maybe it's legitimately there. So that's, that's a really interesting prospect. What about one more there on the back end of the first? Sure. I'm, I'm also a pretty big fan of, um, Bones Highland from VCU. He, he feels like a, that's more of a piston specific one. He feels like a really good compliment to Killian Hayes, where Killian is like the, the engine, you know, big assists, driving, pick and rolls. Um, Bones is more of a pull-up slasher. Can He might be the best shooter in the draft, not named Max Asmus. He can really shoot off the pull-up, and he's more. he would be more of the scoring complement to, um, to the passing of the point guard. So I think that he would be a really good spot there. Obviously, if you're getting him at the end of the first round, there are some issues, and that is mainly he's got a really thin frame. His nickname is Bones for a reason. He's <laughs> super skinny, but he has a nice long wingspan that makes you pretty confident with uh, with his ability to get there on defense. He racks up a lot of steals, and I think he's a pretty nifty fit with Killian. Awesome. No, that's that, those are two nice. Like just listening to you talk about those guys, like I feel like those would be nice complementary pieces. You know, that if you could add at the back end of the first round, that would fit really well with with where we're at, and um, you know, a second unit guys maybe with the upside of eventually being in the first unit playing alongside Killian. So, um, I lied. I want to ask you about one more process, prospect. We don't have to. You don't have to go into it a lot. Where does Luca Garza fall? Like, where where do you think he gets drafted? Does he get drafted? Uh, I don't think so. He he might get drafted just off the college profile. He is pretty much the stereotypical college big that does not have the movement skills to hang in the NBA. Awesome. That's what I I just always have to ask. I can't help myself. So, (laughs) um, let, let's let's move outside the draft now, CJ, because I think this stuff. I think this is impressive. It's one thing to, I don't know, take numbers and finagle like. You creating these gravity and spacing numbers is, is just super impressive. Like, and I'm not trying to just like build you up because you're on the show. Like, I just was like, I looked at this stuff. I'm like, you just, you came up with this stuff on your own and, and it's super useful. It's not just random stats. So why don't you explain to our listeners what it is, how you came up with it, why you came up with it, and then we'll start looking at the actual numbers. Yeah, sure thing. So I actually came up with it. Um, because of the college game. I I did it the first time last year with Cole Anthony because the UNC team had just zero spacing around it. I was watching Cole drive into a wall every now and again. And I started thinking about, you know, the almost gravitational pull that good shooters have on an offensive floor. So what it is, is there's two columns. And when when you post the pod, I'll kind of drop a picture of the Pistons under it so people can see it. For sure. Thank you. Yeah. It'll so spacing kind of refers to a off ball shooter's ability to pull their defender away from the paint into the three point line, kind of opening up that space in the offense. While gravity is kind of the inverse, it's the on ball player's ability to pull defenders towards him and away from the shooters, you know. So the spacing one is essentially just three-point volume, three-point accuracy. If you shoot a lot of threes and you make a lot of threes, defenders are going to start paying attention to you. It's kind of common sense. And gravity is the same way where it looks at, 
you know, counting like usage stats. So essentially, if you're doing a lot of, if you have a lot of usage, you're doing a lot, of, you're taking a lot of field goals, you're throwing a lot of assists, you're making a lot of turnovers. If you're doing a lot and you're doing it efficiently, you're scoring efficiently, then the defense has to start reacting to. It's kind of just putting a, a visualization and a math-based stance to a, a, a thing that basketball fans are familiar with. You know, we all see spacing and gravity. And this is just kind of a way to visualize it and see which players are positively and negatively contributing to it. No, I, I love it because I, I probably lend more towards obviously the video, the film, because that's what, you know, I, I just love to dive into film and break stuff down. But I love to see the numbers that you threw out because I think they have to go together. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I can... I want to see the numbers that go along with the film or vice versa. So I just, when you, when you brought that up, I was like, this is awesome. Like, I I just, I love that you were able to quantify those things. And so what I went, was, was there any surprises? What, 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 as you crunched the numbers, you know, I remember interacting with you that day on Twitter as you were releasing it for the NBA season. Was there anything that surprised you? Um, or, or even an outlier, I guess I can put those two questions together. Was there anything that like you kind of jumped off the page at you um, whenever you were looking at them? Yeah, actually. Um, ready? To, I'll see if this is surprising for you to hear this because it really shocked me. Would you be stunned to know that Trey Young and Jeremy Grant took the same amount of threes per minute or per possession this year? And uh, Jeremy Grant actually had a higher field or higher three point percentage. <laughs> Absolutely, you could have won a lot of money from me if you would have asked that. To, that's crazy. So he took. I, honestly, the percentage isn't even as shocking as much as the attempts. The volume, yes. So a lot of the spacing number is volume because it's almost. It, no one cares if you're a forty five percent shooter if you're shooting one a game. No one's going to close out on that. Sure. So yeah. volume has a lot to do with it. And we all know that Trey Young is an awesome spacer. We're like, that's not a question. But these numbers are based, or these metrics are based on numbers. And Trey took a huge step back this year in those that three point hunting that he did his rookie year to kind of be more efficient and for the team. And yeah, his his percentage is, is low because he takes a very difficult um, uh, uh, set of threes. He doesn't take those catch and shoot threes. But I was pretty shocked that Jeremy Grant had – it was the same. What it was is they had the same amount of threes per um, per uh, possession, which I thought was pretty crazy. So so by those, that means Jeremy Grant's spacing number was actually higher than Trey Young's, like by your metric, just the spacing number? Yeah, which of course isn't true. You know, you have to take everything in context. Obviously, Trey Young is a great spacer, but – yeah, J- Jeremy Grant had a higher spacing number this year than Trey Young. Obviously, that wouldn't have been the same last year, and it probably won't be the same next year. But yeah, I thought that was a fun little outlier. Yeah, that was. That was that's a great one. What what was Trey Young's gravity? I mean, was his gravity number? It it had to have been. It has to be high, right? Because he has such a high usage for that team. Yeah, he was in the ninety seventh percentile in gravity. Got you. Got you. What I don't know if you've had a chance to look into this. Do you see any correlation between your numbers and playoff teams or wins? Like, have you been able to dive into it at that in that way at all? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of goes without saying that the best spaced floors typically are the better teams. There are some exceptions. The Lakers are a huge exception. They've been playing 
Anthony Davis at the power forward, LeBron at small forward, and then also another center at oh, center. Like they're, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's Drummond or Montrose Harrell. So their spacing's a mess. The Sixers are built around two stars that aren't exactly uh, high-volume three-point shooters. But for the most part, the better teams in the league tend to be higher up on the chart. I'll give you the top five teams in the league in my spacing score for this year are one, the Nets, two, the Jazz, three, the Clippers, four, the Mavericks, five, the Bucks, and then six, the Trailblazers. That's a pretty good uh, baseline of what a, a positively spaced floor can do for you. Yeah, that's uh, like you said, you would expect that to be the way it is. I just I was curious. I think the one so I feel like I answered Joe Harris for the spacing number. I think you asked on Twitter and he wasn't that was one that kind of stood out to me. Is that because what, what his spacing number wasn't as high as what I thought for some reason? I think that that first initial one I put out had a little glitch in it. That first page, it, it kind of got corrected uh, like 45 minutes later. Joe Harris oh. is a 99th percentile. Okay, spacer. okay, okay. Yeah. All right. Because I was like, I, I, and as I was thinking about it right now, I was like, well, maybe he didn't take enough threes. But I was like, no, nah, he shoots a ton of threes. Yeah. You know, nah. so, all right. So his spacing now. And then I, I know I ask you this. So the spacing and gravity combination for individuals, what Steph Curry was one, right? Like he is essentially a hundred. A yeah. Sc- uh, that, that was actually awesome to see. Steph was a 100th percentile spacer and a 100th percentile gravity. It was nuts. And and I want to give you credit, CJ, because I did a breakdown of Steph Curry using, like, you were the motivation behind that. It was like, I had seen those numbers. I'm like, okay, CJ put these numbers out. Now I'm going to go put the film to it and see if the film, and I think we all knew. I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything special. Everybody knows that he gets chased around and draws defenders, but it was fun to do, um, you know, after you had put those numbers out. So, And I think that the thing to really note there is those high spacing and gravity guys are the pull-up shooters. You know, like if you're going to have the ball in your hand that much, the top three were Steph and then Dame and then Zach Levine. And then you have Donovan Mitchell, Paul George, CJ McCollum. It's those guys that can both space the floor and also happen to be the engines of their team. I think it was awesome when you asked me that because I hadn't thought to look at the combined score. But it looks like all of those guys up at the top are the elite spacers and the guys that also have that pull-up ability while being the engine on their team. Sure. It's interesting that Lillard and McCollum are are both so high, you know, being on the same team. Like it just – that that's a we can transition into the playoff talk with this so i i just uh, again like give you props for coming up with that I, i'm sure it's a ton of work that i definitely don't understand with you know the statistics behind it and the metric you know all of that um but i just think it's really cool and uh, applaud you for coming up with it and 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 putting it out there for everybody to see so um pistons fans make sure you you look for that whenever we we promote the prod the podcast but moving into the playoffs so damian lillard and cj mccollum what do you think is going to happen in Portland if, if they don't have a successful playoff run? You know, I Stotts think... is going to get fired, right? I mean, that's been the first thing. But do you think eventually do they have to say, like, this isn't going to work with these two as good as both of them are? I think that if they were interested in that, it would have happened already. Okay. I think that that Portland team, maybe their goal isn't necessarily a championship you know i think that a lot of times we get caught up in you know it's it's the end goal everybody wants to win a championship you know but that damian lillard portland team i think it really means something to the community in portland i know dame loves portland and they may deal cj mccollum and and see if they can mix it up a little bit 
But I, I think that they're just a really great team that has been not quite good enough for a bunch of years in a row. And I think if you really ask the people in the Trailblazers front office and ownership where they were at on that, I think that they probably understand and are okay with that because it just means a lot to Portland. And Portland's not exactly a market where you can tank and rebuild. So I think that they are really happy with the success of the Damian Lillard era, uh, maybe privately. No, that's – I actually like hearing that. I don't want to see it happen, but like – I just look at them and it's sometimes just like, okay, what are they going to do? You know, and, and like I say, I, I could see Stotts getting fired if it doesn't work out this year. You know, if they don't, I mean, it's, they're in a tough spot because they're playing the Nuggets who probably have the MVP, but you know, with Jamal Murray hurt, all of a sudden there's these expectations that they should knock him off by some probably. I don't know. I just, I just wondered if there was ever a big move. I, I couldn't see him ever moving Dame. I just wonder if they would ever move CJ. Um, yeah, you know, I think just it's a to change things up. I, I think they might reshuffle some chairs around there. I don't think that you will see. I, I'm not sure that there's a move to be made that they move CJ for a star and become a contender. You know, I think that this, I think this might be the max we see of that Portland team. And quite honestly, I think it's okay. I think that they were a really fun team. Portland has given us some awesome moments in the playoffs, and I, I, I think that, I think that we should. And I think that a lot of NBA fans do, but I think that we should be able to accept that they're great, maybe not the greatest, but they're a lot of fun and I enjoy watching them play. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the, those two guys are are awesome. Like I, I like you say, Dame's incredible. Um, I had the fortune of coaching against CJ McCollum whenever he was a freshman at Lehigh. That that was the conference that I played in and I stayed on as a coach. Um, my host, my our normal host, Vlad, played against CJ multiple times. Um, so always been a big fan of his and, um, you know, following his career. So um I just want to get open it up here, CJ, to um, what's your biggest – I know we're just – play in game. I know we're only a couple games into the first round, so there haven't been a ton of surprises, but what would be the biggest thing that surprised you or you didn't see coming, whether it was any of those play in games or maybe teams that have won a couple games here early or have the games won one? What, what, what's been a surprise for you so far in the playoffs? Yeah, I think actually the my answer to that would also be the most important thing that we've seen so far in these playoffs, and I think it's the Bucks. I think that the Bucks have been they've been playoff disappointments the last couple of years with Milwaukee, and they gave us a lot of lip service this offseason that they're going to, you know, they don't care about the regular season this year. They're not chasing the one seed. They're going to go trade for Drew Holiday, and they're going to dedicate themselves to playoff basketball. You know, they're building a playoff basketball team, and I think the early returns in that Miami series, and Miami's not exactly a slouch of a team, and I think that the early returns in that series have been that. You know, they took it seriously and they built a team that is better off for the playoffs than the last couple Milwaukee Bucks teams. I don't think that they are going to be quite the same, uh, the same early round disappointment that they have been in the past. And honestly, I wouldn't be totally shocked if they gave Brooklyn a run for their money in the uh, Eastern Conference semis. Yeah, that's. I'll be honest, that's a team I kind of just didn't pay attention to most of the regular season. And I know that's bad to say as an NBA fan, but it's like, oh yeah, it's the Bucks. Giannis, you know, the regular season has been the regular season for them, you know? And yeah. it's like, oh, but fair. then, 
because of that, I feel like I discounted them in the playoffs. You know what I mean? Like I just, I was like, oh, they'll just, they'll just Milwaukee again. And yeah, I mean, I, I thought Miami would give them a run for their money and they're up 2-0. And as we record this on Thursday night, um, May 27th, you know, that the, they're up by 20 in the fourth right now, 25. So they're going to go up 3-0. You know, they're probably going to sweep Miami. Um, and you know, and be able to rest going into that. That that's going to be a series right there, man. Milwaukee and Brooklyn. Yeah. That'll be a that'll be a, a heck of a series. What about your 76ers? Because um, you know, I I watched that whole game last night till it got out of hand in the fourth. Um, I'm actually a KU fan, so I've watched Joel Embiid ever since college when he was at KU. Um, I, I dove into that film this morning and really liked what I saw from Ben Simmons last night. I thought he was incredible. I feel like he's a very polarizing player. What what are you seeing from Philly? Maybe not just now, but this year and then so far in the playoffs that maybe you like or, or maybe something that concerns you. Yeah, I think that this year is finally just the first example of what at least people in Philly have been clamoring for since we got Joe and Ben. And really, it's the first time we've had it since the Jimmy Butler trade, which it was just you have two really awesome basketball players that don't necessarily shoot the ball all that well. So surround them with space. You know, we brought in Seth Curry, who shoots the lights out of the ball. Danny Green is a corner wizard. And Doc kind of lit a fire under Tobias and said, hey, catch it and shoot. You know, that was the thing that Tobias was missing. He's a little bit of a ball stopper. And I think that the spacing really changed this year in Philly. And you could see it. And Joe had more room to work. And Ben, you know, Ben gets a tough rap, but there aren't many guys in the league that can go put up 15 assists and 15 rebounds in a playoff game whether it's against Washington or anybody. I yeah, don't no. think they will um I, I don't think they'll be tested in the first two rounds. And I think that it's going to be a monster movie between them and whoever comes out of that awesome Brooklyn Milwaukee series. And honestly I, I I'd probably put the Sixers as slight dogs against either team that came out of there, but it's a coin flip series and it's gonna be an awesome one to watch. So with Embiid, do you think, and maybe I'm wrong here, I feel like he made, he turned a corner this year and it, a lot of it people acted like he changed his game, but do you think he changed his game? Because I think he was probably MVP if he wouldn't have missed so many games or it would have been really close. I know it hasn't been announced yet. I'm just assuming Jokic is going to win it, but did he change his game or was it this new roster construction of putting these shooters around him with Doc and all that, which I think that trade was a great trade for Philly, for Seth Curry. I think it was an awful trade for the Mavs, but we can talk about that here in a little bit. But did Joel change his game or was it just, you know, finding the right pieces to fit together? I think it was a little bit of both. I think he came in without a doubt in the best shape of his life into training camp this year. And that kind of carried through into the regular season. I think he was a beast. But it's hard to say, considering I, I almost can't count last year. If we take last year out of this, the last time we saw him before last year, he was the most dominant player on the floor in that Raptors series when he was on that heartbreaking Kawhi yep. shot. You know, yep. uh-huh. he, so he he was a monster. He was playing at an MVP level in those playoffs. Last year is a little bit tough because he was playing in a starting lineup that had Ben Simmons, who doesn't shoot. Al Horford, who isn't a good shooter, Josh Richardson, who isn't a good shooter, and Tobias Harris, who refused to shoot. So he, <laughs> he, he would catch the ball in the post and f- see three bodies and kick it out to shooters that couldn't shoot. You know, it was just one of the 
one of the worst roster constructions that you can possibly imagine by the uh, collaborative effort that we had at general manager. <laughs> and and honestly, it I'm not surprised that the team was bad because they were miserable to watch. I had to stop watching them because it was just frustrating and they really they didn't look like a NBA offense really in any way. So I think the last couple times that we've seen Joel surrounded by even a modicum of spacing he's been this guy i think this is the first time that he was healthy enough to do it over that big course of 40 games before he got hurt and um i I think that this is who he is i'm i'm really i'm not surprised to see this and i think that you'll see more of this in the seasons to come yeah i mean so as i broke down some film on him from last night's game like He's just so fluid, man. Like for a, like he moved, he had a he had a drive. He was he was attacking Gafford in transition, and he went like spin move, l- right left or left right euro, and then like scooped it under Bertans. And I was just like, that's just silly for a seven footer to be doing that, you know. Let alone the post game, and he can make a three, and you know he was passing out of the double team. Like he he, he I, I think he's undervalued in terms of his skill level and what he's able to do. He's a total package. He's he hits like step back, step back pull up jumpers right now. Like he 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 can do anything that you need him to do on the basketball floor, and he just happens to be one of the best personalities in the sport. You know, I'm speaking as somebody that has come out through the other side of a rebuild. If you uh, just going through that whole thing, you know, Joel alone was worth it. It was <laughs> he is an absolute joy to root for. And he is one of the most dominant basketball players in the world right now. And he shows it on a nightly basis. Yeah, I saw his tweet today. I think he, you know, from his and one in transition last night. And then he did his little hip thrust or whatever thing and had a new hashtag to, to go along with it. So he he is, he's an absolutely a character, um, but a, one hell of a basketball player as well. So um, let's move to the Western Conference here before we, we finish up, CJ. Um, what, what? Maybe some general thoughts about the West. How about Dallas? So let's start with Dallas. I'll, I'll I'll give us somewhere to start. So we talked about that trade. I didn't like that trade. I still picked Luka Doncic to be the MVP and the Mavericks to be a top three team in the West preseason. I wasn't right, but now they're starting to make me look a little smarter. Is this series completely shocking you how it started out? Yes, because the Clippers are so dominant and can shoot the ball so well. I think a little bit of it is really hot shooting from Dallas that I don't think is going to continue. And I don't think that this series is by any means over. I think that, I think that at the very least, this goes six and it might go seven. But quite honestly, they've already stolen two and Luke is the best player on the floor, which is crazy to say on a floor that includes Kawhi, but Luke is the best player on the floor and they don't have the Clippers don't have that point guard that gets them into their offense. Kawhi's awesome. He's one of the best players in the world, but he has always been a shoot first guy. He's not that distributor. And I think that the Marcus Morris trade that I re- I didn't like it when they made it. And I think it's kind of just been over and over again, Marcus Morris, somehow when the Clippers need a basket, Marcus Morris decides it's Marcus Morris time. And I really think he's been a underrated problem for the Clippers. That being said, they were a, a championship contender for a reason coming into this year. And 
they are just as capable of shooting 50% from three as Dallas is over the next two games. And I would be surprised if we have heard the last of the Clippers in this series. For sure. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think the series is over. It just shocked me. I, I I really thought the Clippers would win it in four or five. I just didn't think Dallas had it in them. I pro- obviously underestimated Luka. I love Luka. He's one of my favorite players in the league. Um, I just didn't love what I saw from from that, that team in the regular season. It'll be interesting to see if Tim Hardaway Jr. continues to play the way Tim Hardaway Jr.'s played through two games. Um, but Luka's fun to watch, man. He, he's incredible. Um, what he's able to do, uh, real quick. Let's let's. I want to talk about two more series before before we go. So, how about Utah Memphis? Memphis stole that first game. Donovan Mitchell comes back last night. You know, plays incredible. I love watching Utah play offense. I think it's a lot of fun. Some people have called it boring. I don't understand. They have shooter. You talk about space. I assume their spacing, you know, metric is incredible. So, oh yeah, you said it was second behind um behind who Brooklyn. Yeah. So, uh, what do you think about that series? John Morant drops 47 last night. Like, I feel like the league has some young stars that are really showing out so far in the playoffs. Yeah. Utah is deadly. Utah is probably not going to make it out of the West because the West is nuts, but they play really um, fundamentally sound and beautiful basketball. It's hard to guard that many shooters around the roll gravity of Gobert. And you talked about the, the spacing metric, right? Ready? They have Joe Ingles is 97th percentile. Jordan Clarkson is 94th. Donovan Mitchell's 94th. Mike Conley's 93rd. And Georgie Nang is 98th. Not to mention <laughs> um, Bo- Bohan's 82nd. They just shoot the Wait, lights what, out of the what's ball. What's Royce O'Neal? What's Royce O'Neal? Royce O'Neal is 48th percentile. Oh, okay, so not quite as high. Okay, yeah, he's not. Those he other doesn't quite have the volume that the rest of the guys do. I got. You. I say because he shoots like forty percent almost, but just not yeah. the volume. Okay. If you're playing in Utah's offense right now, you are getting wide open <laughs> looks, no matter who you are. It's a beautifully spaced floor. I think that Memphis is kind of the blueprint for Detroit, right? You draft the talented young guard, Killian Ja. And not to say that Killian is quite on that path because Ja has turned into something else, but they've really just accumulated good player after good player and it it put them ahead of schedule. I think that they weren't supposed to be here yet and I think that Utah's probably going to make them look like they weren't supposed to be here yet before the series is over, but you have to, you have to respect the fight that they put up. They really, they really play hard. I mean, Dylan Brooks fits that mold exactly what you're talking about. Like, he's not supposed to be what he is right now, was he? Like, what? Where did you have Dylan Brooks? I mean, what 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 was your draft profile, or what did you see him becoming in the NBA? Because he's honestly shocked me. Um, honestly, I thought that he was just an inefficient scorer. I I I think honestly, I don't think I think what he is on offense is within his realm of pop of uh, outcomes. You know, he he's not world beating on offense by any means but i don't think anyone saw him really turning into the one of the best 20 ish perimeter defenders in the league he gives those he gives those primary guards real issues and it's the same thing we were talking about with josh christopher earlier in the show if you are that inefficient scorer you have a lot more you have many more paths to an nba future if you lock in on the defensive end and there are different kind of defenders uh brooks is more you know, bulky and he doesn't have that same wingspan. Christopher's is more athleticism based, but I think giving yourself that defensive backbone allows you to stick 
if you're not the most efficient scorer in the world. Yeah, it's just it's impressive the the role he's carved out for himself and and what he's able to do. I I, I tend to agree with you that Memphis probably woke Utah up with that game one. Mitchell, you know, is back now. And like you say, they're probably going to make them look like they, they're still a year or two away. Um, but it's still impressive what Memphis has done, you know, getting through the play-in games, still in game one, and what John Morant has done. So um, one more series here, CJ. I, I, we have to talk Phoenix and the Lakers. You know, it's 1-1. They're playing tonight. We probably need to wrap this up so we can go bo- both go watch that game. So um, I'm sorry if we missed the first quarter or the first part of the first quarter. But what, how do you think this is going to play out? Um, you know, what, what do you see I'm, happening? I'm honestly just gutted for Chris Paul. The, yeah, guy, right? the guy can't catch a break. <laughs> Every time he, he's snake bitten or something or made some sort of deal with the devil that he's a warrior. He's going to battle through it, but he's clearly not the same guy. And I don't think the Phoenix can, um, can really do it without Chris Paul being Chris Paul, kind of like how Houston couldn't do it without Chris Paul being Chris Paul. I don't know what he, um, what he got with his deal in the devil, but man, these random crazy postseason injuries are brutal. It's just crazy, right? Like, and it's not even that it's the fact that he, takes this team where he took it, the level he took it to, and then his reward, their reward for the first round is the Lakers, the healthy Lakers. You know, it'd be one thing if the Lakers were coming in as a seven seed and Anthony Davis was still hurt or, you know, and I, I don't wish that on Anthony Davis or LeBron James, but you know, if they weren't healthy, but they got a fully healthy Lakers team, you know, like at, at, in the first round as a two seed, like it's just, you're right. Like, you know, what what they had the Warriors down, what, 3-1 whenever he pulled the hamstring? Like, they were going to win that series. They absolutely – and I love Steph Curry, and I love that Warriors team a lot. But the Rockets were going to win that series. So mm-hmm. – Yeah, um, it's sad. And honestly, I think that Vogel fi- finally figured out what everybody else has known for years in that you just – you can't play Andre Drummond. I know you guys have some personal uh, <laughs> attachment there. Yeah. But he – He's a fine player in the right context, but if you're going to have Anthony Davis and LeBron James on the floor, you can't also have Andre Drummond on the floor. The spacing is talk about spacing. The spacing is horrific. Um, I, I put this up the other day. Let, let me pull up the Lakers because this was, this one was actually shocking. So there, we already talked about this. They're a very poorly spaced floor. Their only guys that are even ab- above the 60th percentile are LeBron, who's 70. Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who's 72, and Kyle Kuzma, who's 69. But Montrez Harrell and Andre Drummond are zeroth percentile spacers. <laughs> they they don't shoot threes, and no one will guard them on the floor. So if you're if you kind of like what the Sixers had to deal with a while ago, they're they're if you're playing Drummond or Harrell, you're inviting a, another defender to clog up the paint where your two stars prefer to play. Anthony Davis and LeBron both like getting um, down low. Marc Gasol is no world beater as a floor stretcher, but he's, what, 55th percentile? He takes the shots, you know? It, you ju- you don't even need him to shoot. You just need the threat of him shooting to, to open up to, that offense, yeah. that, that just that tiniest bit. So, and then, I don't know. Like, I listened to this, CJ, and like – this is going to sound awful because they're world champs right now and I'm sitting in a basement, you know, at my home. But like, I just feel like that's awful roster construction and they get bailed out because they have the best player in the world 
probably one of the, not probably, one of the best players to ever play the game and Anthony Davis. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, that's not me trying to call out the, the Los Angeles Lakers and how they constructed this roster, but like, how do you not look at that roster and go say, let's go get a, a stretch big man at the five spot as opposed to Marc Gasol, Harrell, and, you know, and, and Andre Drummond. And, and maybe they, maybe they tried and they weren't able to, but to me, it's like, yeah, let's go get guys that can just hold their defenders so LeBron and AD can go to work. Yeah, and I like Gasol. I, I think he's I think he's high feel. I think they probably should have been playing him much much more. I think that the Drummond acquisition, even though they got him for free, did more harm than it did good, quite honestly. And it always comes down to it at the end of the day, Anthony Davis doesn't like to bang with centers. You know, he's six foot eleven. They don't need to play another big man. If they play Davis and LeBron, like you can construct a kind of spaced floor around those two, but Anthony Davis has yet to prove that he's willing to spend a whole game banging with fives, which makes their job as roster constructors a little more difficult because you need to find someone that could bang with those bigs in the regular season and then also step out in space in the postseason and there aren't that many guys available for the minimum, which is all they're really working with. No, for sure. That, that And that's completely fair. Like, you know, I just think about like, and I know he ended up retiring, but like LaMarcus Aldridge, like I feel like he would have been a good fit, right? Like, I mean, his, his he would have been able to space the floor a little bit. I don't understand the Anthony Davis not wanting to play the five. Like, to, like you've said, like, like that's the, that's the, the lineup, right? Is him at the five, LeBron at the quote unquote four, and then you put Kuzma and KCP and whoever, you know, and, uh, Schroeder out there. And then you all of a sudden have a space floor, but it just doesn't, it sounds like Anthony Davis just kind of refuses to go and do that. Yeah. And I mean, obviously we don't know what's going on. Sure. There. Sure. <laughs> fair knows? enough. Yeah. But, from the reports that have come out of Los Angeles, it seems like if it were up to Anthony Davis, he would prefer to be that perimeter player and not, you know, not bang with fives sure. for whatever reason. Well, and I guess, I mean, the players have a lot of control. So if that's where, I mean, I understand it, you know, um, but it would be, it would be nice to see that. It'll be interesting to see, I guess it'll be interesting as they go through the playoffs, it really gets into winning time. They get an elimination game, stuff like that. You know, whenever you kind of throw all that stuff out the window, it'll be interesting to see if we see him at the five more. So, um, but CJ, I've taken up enough of your time. I appreciate it. I know we both probably want to go watch these games. Um, let, let our listeners know, throw out where can they find you on Twitter? I don't know if you're on, you know, Instagram, YouTube, whatever. Um, you know, plug your stuff. Yeah, sure thing. So you can follow me at Twitter at CJ Marchesani. Um, I'm sure it'll be tagged in the podcast. Yes, absolutely, post. absolutely. My work is my my personal writing is usually at the Stepian, but I also have roll call, roll call sports running, where we have a, a ton of great guys putting out scout, scouting content. And if you want up to date information on this year's draft, I can't recommend roll call highly enough. Those guys do great work. And if you're interested in any of the projects that we were talking about today. I have most of them threaded under my uh, pinned tweet on Twitter. So you can kind of scroll through there and check everything out. Yeah. So guys, you have to go follow CJ Marchesani on Twitter. I will, I will, you know, tag him in all of the promotions. I'm tagging him probably every day anyway. So if you're following Motor City Hoops, you're going to see his name come across. You have to go follow him. It's, it's great content, not just draft stuff, but this, this spacing and gravity stuff as well. Just NBA basketball content in general. So I appreciate you coming on, CJ. Make sure you go follow Motor City Hoops and, uh, we'll catch you next week. Yeah. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening to the Motor City Hoops podcast. Catch you on the next one.